0: If this if this were a rap album, the first one would be this beautifully woke piece of art, and then every single one after that is diss tracks. I
1: just want to know, like, is there going to be any bodies after this album has been released? You know? Are, <laughs> are we gonna find lightning floating, floating in the water, river with like stab wounds to the neck, you know, oh, is mostly gonna turn up oh, nailed to a tree outside, you know, his university?
2: I mean, I've been thinking drive-bys, man, but that's gruesome.
1: Hello, and welcome to part two of the tenth installment of the Refuting Marx's Inconsistency Capital and the TSSI series. This week, we smite all foes in our path and finish chapter eight of Andrew Kleiman's reclaiming Marx's capital to great fanfare. We look in detail at Table 8.2, which is the graphic for this episode for those who don't have the book to follow along with. You can also listen to the unedited episode on YouTube, where you can see the sections under Discussion. If you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube channel, I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter. If you'd like to participate in or vote on the book choice for the upcoming reading group series, you can do so by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 an episode. OK, to the tables.
3: This, I think, is my favourite part, the Borkowitz uh, proof.
1: Yeah, this is, this is brilliant. OK, so instead of going through some of the text first, we're going to look at the table and try and get our, our grasp on the table, I think. And then we can talk through the table about, once you understand the table, maybe we can discuss what Borkovich reckoned was going on. How do people feel about that? Yep, let's do it. Okay, so let me see. I really, really like this table. This table hurt my head a lot. Oh, before we start this table, this table is supposed to be for simple reproduction, meaning that there is no there's no accumulation.
3: Yeah, the scale of production stays the same.
1: Exactly. Max is going to set this up into three separate departments. we got one is our means of production department. Two is our... Means systems. of subsistence. subsistence. Means of subsistence. And three is going to be our luxury. So we've got three things. We've got the machines, the food, and the Gucci watch department. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah? Okay. from our volume two, I think. Yeah, Max yeah. was into his Gucci's. We... <laughs> So this is going to be pretty simple stuff this first year. This is just going to be like the tables we did previously. Our constant capital, our variable capital, our surplus. We're going to have the value of the product. Then we're going to use our price of production. We're going to get the average profit that people should get, and we're going to get the total price of the outputs. Okay. So we see after the first year, We've got the value of outputs in of department one. So our machinery outputs are four hundred, but the price is going to be four hundred and forty. Okay, they've got because a lot of a
3: capital-intensive
1: industry. Capital-intensive, just like we see in the previous one. So here we see in our this is our 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 food industry, our, our potato farmer industry, two hundred and forty output of value of output, but because they're using a lot of labor, it's only going to be priced as two hundred and twenty. Okay. It's not capital intensive. And similarly, for the Gucci watches, amazingly, it's, it's, it's labor intensive and not capital intensive. With Then they're valued at mm-hmm. 140. Okay. Now, the problem that Barkovich had was that he looked at this output for Department 1 of 440. And he said, the price of these, these these output of capital goods here, this doesn't match the 400 that we pumped in at the start of the year. Okay, all the capital goods at the start of the year were four forty. But look, look what's going on over here. The fucking price. We know we got four forty of these guys. And similarly he says, you know, we started with two hundred and forty hours of labour. And he goes, Look, Jesus, what's after happening here? Now we got two twenty and they don't match. And then he says, Oh, we started with one hundred sixty of Gucci watches, but at the end of it only got one hundred forty. So in simple reproduction, this doesn't work. It's a breakdown. Economy will go to dust. I think it's important
3: to say that he thought that because the price increases in um, department one, because there's 440 instead of 400, simple reproduction cannot occur because there isn't sufficient demand for the products. And there's too much demand for department two and three because their prices fall. So he's saying okay. that they can't be put into use for the next period there isn't enough of them. This is another one of those things where they mix up
1: price and the physical amounts. Correct. So let's have a look at what, Ma- what Marx would have said that would have happened here. He would say that, okay, so you got this dude here, Department 1 has 440, okay? But what he's saying at the start of the year, the ratio of prices to values was one to one, okay? So what he's saying now is that these 440 represent 400 units, okay? So each one is going to be worth 1.1. So if he's going to buy 280 units of capital, it's going to cost him 1.1 times 280, which is 308, okay? Similarly, Department 2 needs 88, and Department 4 needs 44. Now, they also have to buy their, their workers, okay? But the means of subsistence for the workers has gone down by a 12th, okay? So instead of it costing 72, it's going to cost 66, which is one 12th less. And the 96 is going to cost 88 and the 72 is going to cost 66. So now look, we've got our 440 here as matching the 440 of the price. So the, the total price of the means of production matches the 440 paid to the department one and the 220 of the variable capital matches the price of the means of subsistence mm-hmm. and now if we look at department one we've got 308 and 66 so that's its capital and uh, the wages add them up you get 374 and you take 374 from 440 and you're left with 66 Okay, and if you do the same with the second department, you get left 44 and 30. But wait a second, these are, this is like the, as Marx calls it, the revenue. So the basically the stuff that they've got left over after they've produced stuff. And if you add up all those, they total up precisely to the means of, of the luxury goods, so the Gucci's. So what we have is values getting out of whack from the one-to-one relationship but what we are able to do is reproduce ourselves at the same physical level. But there are changes in prices going on. And if we work through what that means for it, this year, which is kind of counterintuitive, it means that we increase our rate of profit in value terms, even though our, on physical terms, we have the same outputs. And the reasoning for that is to do with the setup here, which is the means of subsistence get devalued. So the amount of money you have to pay for them, the price you have to pay for them is smaller. So you get more of a surplus. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. So the the rate of profit is going up, even though the physical, it's in simple reproduction. And that's due to the, the values. There's just whatever values Andrew decided to pick for this example. If you had chosen the means of subsistence industry to be capital intensive and not labor intensive, you would see the rate of profit drop. I think it's important that um, Andrew says that it's not
3: necessary for the prices and the values to be equal at the start and the end of production. But it is necessary for prices of the outputs to equal the prices of the inputs because, you know. When you buy an output, an output is sold; an input is bought because it, you know, they happen at the same time. It's simultaneous
1: because two sides of a transaction. So the the outputs of end of period one is inputs and start of period two. But what we're not doing is equating our outputs and our inputs simultaneously. Yeah, I just thought this table was amazing. You know, I just thought this is it. We're seeing three departments. We're seeing what happens year after year. We're showing how. Simple reproduction can happen. If we had an economy with no prices and it was like barter and we had simple reproduction, it can happen. Here's showing how prices and simple reproduction happens. This shows transformation of prices from one period to the next. It shows how it all works. And it totally thrashes the basic claim that reproduction can't happen, that the prices and values can't transform. Here it is, a simple example. You know, you may take it 10 or 15 minutes to get your head around it, but it's right there. There's absolutely no refuting this table. I think this is a slam dunk, an absolute slam dunk table. Oh, yeah.
0: That's, yeah. I would agree. <laughs> As you said, Priya, with the output and the input prices, again, Marx, Marx states again and again the capital outlay is given. And that's, that's sort of the key. As soon as, as soon as you do away with Marx's core thing, really, in Chapter 9, which is that capitalists, they buy labor power and they buy means of production on the market according to the price that they were at the point of purchase and at the point of entering production. If you just run with what Marx says you should run with, <laughs> you, know, you can derive this beautiful table. And it all sort of clicks together. But as soon as you think that the capital outlay is somehow calculated after the fact, then the, it all breaks down. But the, there was a point Andrew made that was kind of
3: confused me at first because I thought he was saying the opposite of that. But then I realized he was saying something extremely obvious, was that the output of period one has to equal the prices of the input of period two because the end of period one and the end of period and the start of period two are the same
1: time. I still stop here. Let me see here. We thus see that equality of input and output prices is not necessary for reproduction to take place or for supplies to equal demands. Since one period's output prices are the next period's input prices, supplies and demands in monetary terms must always be equal whenever supplies and demands are equal in physical terms, no matter how prices may have changed over the production period. This refutation of Borkiewicz's attempted proofs has not in itself been refuted. Leibman, the only critic of Mark to have addressed it in print, acknowledges that Kleiman and McGlone demonstrated that reproduction equilibrium exists between periods, even though the input and output prices differ. In other words, Borkiewicz's proofs are invalid. Leibman's acknowledgement of this fact, embedded in a mass of objections to temporal valuation, is easy to miss, but it is there.
0: There's another um, Marx quote from the same chapter, uh, chapter nine of volume three, that I think is a really okay. important conclusion or implication of this exact table.
1: You're just showing off now that you've actually read that chapter. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a section. What is that yeah. section? Yeah. Right. So, we get it, Emmanuel. Oh, you. you read the Yeah, <laughs> get it. Yeah, right.
3: Right.
0: We get it. <laughs> I think this is a super important point from Marx that has to do with this. And he says the transformation of values into prices of production. So the transformation of values into prices of production and prices of production here is the price for which the commodity sells on the market. So it's the cost price plus the profit in monetary terms, right? That's what prices of production means in Marx's lingo. So the transformation of values into prices of production serves to obscure the basis for determining value itself. That sentence right there is fucking bomb. Finally, since the mere transformation of surplus value into profit distinguishes the portion of the value of a commodity forming the profit from the portion forming its cost price, that's a mouthful. It is natural that the conception of value should elude the capitalist at this juncture. For he does not see the total labor put into the commodity, but only that portion of the total labor for which he has paid in the shape of means of production, be they living or not. So it doesn't matter to the capitalists, you know, how much is going into machines, how much is going into wages. All that the capitalist cares about is the money I put in, the money I get out, right? So that his profit appears to him as something outside the imminent value of the commodity. So all that the capitalist sees is, I invested 20 million bucks in this enterprise. I derived a million profit. He does not care, nor see any of the underlying mechanisms behind what's happening. Now, this idea is fully confirmed, fortified, and ossified. I have no idea what ossified means, but- Ossified um... means dead and dried up or something? Ossified? Right. Okay. also it uh,
1: means like formally codified like in a sort of
2: i don't know
0: right okay. uh, in a way that suggests it's it's dusty and old that was really illuminating it shows part of marx's genius i think <laughs> in that from the standpoint of his particular sphere of production the profit added to the cost price is not actually determined by the limits of the formation of value within his own sphere but through completely outside influences so to the capitalist, you know, there is, there is nothing in the actual investment process, that the capitalist to capitalist relation, that would show the capitalist or, or make it immediate to him in any way that there is any sort of value theory of business going on. It just appears as, as, as uh, you know, completely outside influences. Some of the things that, you know, if I had a highlighter, I would highlight the portion of the total labor for which he has paid in the shape of means of production, for which he has paid. That implies Mr. Moneybags goes to the market. He pays for means of production, be they living or not. And he doesn't care whatever happens between the veil or in the actual factory.
1: What I want to see is like a a theory of like zombie production. (laughs) <laughs> Can zombie juice living labour it's an intricate one perhaps Andrew should write wrote a, t- a title maybe reclaiming the walking dead is the next book we do <laughs> 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 yeah yeah there you go well Emmanuel is in the driving seat today for winning the the best panellist of the show so far so Puya and and uh-huh. Lexi you're gonna have uh-huh. to help yeah. your game here we want some <laughs> obscure fucking text that we have to quote we could go back and talk about uh, Bombavik's tautological critique. And, oh, God,
0: uh... shut up. If, if we have more time later, if, if people are interested, we could go more into what Marx means by revenue and why it's important for Marx's main beef with Ricardo. Because this is part of this table is actually a refutation of an argument made by ricardo and if people care about that we could go through that but uh, i'm not gonna nah, nah.
1: <laughs> let's, let's keep going for now i'm not going to say we're not going to do it if we get time we'll do it i just like this footnote here about Leibman's objections let me just quote this one i have responded to most of Leibman's objections in private correspondence a friend has recently asked about a comment of Leibman's that immediately follows his acknowledgement that reproduction equilibrium exists between periods. Although there is an infinite regress problem in illustrating this, I did not respond to this originally because its meaning is unclear. Leibman may have been repeating an old saw of simultaneism. Temporal evaluation involves an infinite regress, since the input prices of one period depend upon the output prices of the previous period, which in turn depend upon the input prices of that period, and so on. Anyone who agrees with this objection must to be consistent, object to the notion that the physical inputs of one period must depend on the physical outputs of the previous period, which in turn must depend upon the physical inputs of that period and so on and so on. You know, this idea that an infinite regress is a problem is baffling. We live in time. You know, we don't live in a static world. We live in time. Yeah,
2: like Parmenidean arguments against time. It's like, oh, yeah, you think time passes?
1: You know, like... <laughs> yeah, wait, like, yeah, would like show you. <laughs> it's crazy to think. I think that Zeno's paradox was only disproved mathematically about fifteen, twenty years ago, which is kind of insane. Well, Some it, guy it, it, came it, it, up with a with a the theory of infinitesimals.
2: Well, yeah, it's um basically calculus was this beginning yeah.
1: of solution to Zeno's paradox, and that yeah, it took thousands of years. Yeah, so like, let, let, let's go back. So what do we... The, the last section of this is quite short. It's the Modern Simultaneous Critiques of Marx's Solution. Does anybody want to go through some parts of this? The, yeah, I think there's the last little paragraph I think is quite good to finish out this chapter. And then we might even actually talk about that Ricardian thing, uh, see how we get on. Okay, so okay. So, what am I reading here? This is the last, the last paragraph I'm reading here of chapter uh, 8.6, talking about uh, simultaneous critiques of Marx's solution. The interpretive practice of those who have called the alleged inconsistency in Marx's solution immediately obvious is quite shoddy. Their interpretations make his solution seem not just wrong, but silly, contrary to facts that are self-evident to all. Given this problem and given Marx's solution had previously been understood very differently, even by its staunch critics, proponents of these interpretations should have abandoned them and searched for more plausible ones. The idea that a serious theorist could commit such ridiculous errors and never notice that his sale and purchase prices differ or that his value and prices are dimensionally inconsistent is so implausible that it is sufficient reason to reject these interpretations. Got to agree with Andrew here. Gotta agree that table that we did this uh, multi-sector table and multi-time table of simple reproduction that there disproves, and any objections Ever? to which are just kind of obstruse. I, like I really word.
3: wish Marx had put this table in his uh, in volume three because I was so confused. I was just wondering like when I was reading volume three and how reproduction worked with prices of production. This this made it very easy and very clear.
2: Yeah, that's the reason that, you know, people need to try to extrapolate on Marx's work and to try to, like, systematize it. You know, Engels gets a lot of shit for trying to systematize Marx's work, partially for good reason, but the effort towards doing that is really important, because if we think that the tools are
1: useful, we have to see how they work together. Emmanuel, in one minute or less, tell us what Marx was trying to do with this table to prove a point
0: against ricardo ricardo said luxury goods don't matter because it's all supply and demand bro if you're a maker of limousines that doesn't really matter at all it's the same thing as making any other commodity marx is calling bullshit. the way he does that is through a concept that he calls revenue which is very different from what we today would call revenue but basically revenue is so pretty, very simply, you make T-shirts by buying the raw material cotton. The, the clever capitalist, you buy cotton at 10 bucks per whatever. Three days after that, uh, there's some sort of crisis of cotton production. And so all of a sudden, uh, the price of cotton goes way up. So everyone else who's making T-shirts, they have to buy an, uh, at this new price. That means that when you finally sell your T-shirts, you can sell them at the same price that everyone else did. But because you bought it for cheap, that means you can pocket the difference. So everyone else has to reinvest all of the bucks that they got from selling their t-shirts. But you only have to reinvest what is socially necessary. So you only have to reinvest as much as everyone else does. That means you get to pocket that difference from buying cheap. And that's what Marx calls revenue. So it's sort of a a bit of icing on the cake, as it were. It's It's a surplus above the surplus. This is what's driving the consumption of luxury goods. Because normal people, workers, etc., very rarely have enough cash to buy a limo. But since you have revenue, and all of the other t-shirt makers don't, that means that you can now consume luxury goods. And this is Marx's beef with Ricardo is that yes, the luxury goods sector is a special case. Because if every capitalist reinvested everything and no capitalist could gain revenue, et cetera, there there simply could not be a case in which in the long run, capitalists could buy limos or expensive cigars or expensive wines um, or whatnot. Because the other capitalists are simply going to outcompete you by instead of consuming those luxury products that are going to reinvest it. That's what Marks kind of shows is that l- the luxury goods sector really is a, a special case and it requires specific material conditions that shouldn't be possible given Ricardo's actual assumptions. And so that's that's pretty much the, the, the gist of it.
3: Thanks,
2: Emmanuel. Yeah, pretty concise. Thank you. <laughs> I guess um, last thing I'll say is that without getting too much into Bombark and the tautological thing, Again, the only objection that I can see to this, because to me, like, it's a question of whether that that equalization of average profit rate thing, you know, when you're just looking at through volume three, I think, you know, if you don't have those aggregate equalities in mind, I think it's a little bit of a jump. But once you plug, once you're plugging in those aggregate inequalities, if you believe that they hold, as Marx does, then that move makes perfect sense. You're just reapportioning what's there. And so having an average rate... Should be able to get the same number on both sides, an equal sign. Cool. Basically, what's interesting about the new objection from Bombavark around the tautology is that question about commodity money. And to the extent that Marx dealt with it, I don't know if his models have dealt with it. And that's like the only real objection that I, I still see as not really answered by this. And pretty much everything else is is summarily dealt with here. Again, sometimes we complain about sometimes the book is repetitive, this to that, like some of this could be edited into something that is a, f- a pretty fine blade that would cut through the majority of arguments regarding the transformation problem being the, you know, the close of Marxist system. And this chapter comes out very strong.
3: Yeah, I would definitely agree. This is probably one of the strongest chapters in the books.
1: I think in general, the book could do its own better editing, as in structurally It's kind of repetitive in places. And the thing is, though, if you read the chapters in and of themselves, they're not repetitive. But when you construct the book and put eight, 10, 12 chapters together, we keep rehashing the same arguments again. Maybe you have to do something like that when you're doing such a technical book. Maybe you just really do so that somebody can follow it because you do forget all these concepts. Anybody have any other finishing comments before we quit for this evening for chapter nine? Emmanuel, have we have we convinced you that it's not a shittiest chapter as you were given out about before we started?
0: Well, to me, the the meat of this book, everything is there in chapter two. And the rest of the book is just climbing, rubbing it in your face. And to me, this is one of the rubbing it in your face chapters. And just so happens that if you get things rubbed into your face, you see some things much more clearly, yeah. but the, the, the sort of general feeling I had, and and, and again, this is nitpicking and it's, a, it's an editorial point, but I feel that by this point, Kleiman is restating the same points over and over and just drilling it down even more to say that if you for some reason wasn't already convinced by chapter two, I'm going to take it point by point and I'm going to rub every single teeny beanie bit uh, in your face about why you're wrong and I'm right. If anything, I'm charging Kleiman with the you know accusation of being abundantly clear and, and repeating himself, which, to be fair, Marx does a lot too. That, that's um, what I was going to say, is that Mark, Marx's writing style, and actually this
2: is sort of, endemic to, like, uh, the Hegelian writing style. It's kind of like a a single from a 70s progressive rock album. Like, you hear the chorus so many times, you know what I mean? Whereas there's a certain kind of analytical writing that I like that states everything once or twice very clearly and ends up being short, sort of like a very stripped-down pop-punk song or something where the chorus appears, like, once. If you want to hear it again, you just have to listen to it again
1: whereas like you the know thing is though thing is lexi this isn't a song it's an album you know what i uh, mean oh yeah no no i, I get it it's like um, there's a whole load of different songs and all of them are prog rock
2: <laughs> i think you could do a pretty convincing uh medley that's all emmanuel saying when, when he's saying that this chapter is superfluous he's not saying that there aren't new things introduced here that should have been introduced earlier he wants all that to like come as as the concepts flow rather than in the process of dealing with these different topics or aspects like i'd like to see the sort of uh, (laughs) decision tree from the first assumptions and building up from there that is something like what marx tries to do in capital but again like i think it could benefit from a more analytical style in the anglo
1: sense i feel like we should we should play out to jive bunny or somebody does anyone remember Jive Bunny? I don't. It was no, like, I
3: have no idea who that is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jive Bunny was like, it was a phenomenon in England in like the late 80s, early 90s of all of these, a medley of all of these like classic 1940s, 50s rock songs like Let's Twist Again and Rock Around the Clock. And it like sold unbelievable millions of albums and got to like <laughs> number one for like half a year.
3: You want to put some on Trump?
0: when When anyone charges marks of inconsistency, I'm just gonna play this track and do a little dance. <laughs> <laughs> do
1: you know what it's like? It's like a better version of puff daddy <laughs> Let's just say goodbye and we'll go off air and we can chat there and slag slag everybody we want to and it won't be recorded in public. All right.
2: Bye-bye.